Hello, and welcome to the Great War Podcast, an in-depth look at the origins, battles, and consequences of the First World War. Episode 54, Dragon's Wood. Although the Battle of the Somme had marked the beginning of a long, perilous journey for the British Army, the disaster on its first day did little to change the overall plan. There was no intention of shutting down the operation, and with the French eager to make good on their gains, Britain was under immense pressure to show her commitment to the cause. After conferring with his officers, the British commander-in-chief, Douglas Haig, knew there was no choice but to continue. As we discussed, day one of the Somme marked day 132 of Verdun, and with the French in desperate need of relief along their southern front, Haig understood that any reluctance on Britain's behalf risked jeopardizing the integrity of the Entente. Plus, with the Russians and Italians undertaking offensives of their own, Britain was under a mutual obligation to continue, as per the Chantilly Agreement. Knowing his army needed time to regroup, Haig was forced to change gears, and operations were temporarily scaled down. So instead of large set-piece battles, attacks became localized with single divisions and battalions taking the lead role. Although these piecemeal attacks were often underplanned and hastily arranged, resulting in heavy casualties among the British, they served an important function within the context of wider Allied strategy. They allowed the British to keep faith with their French, Russian, and Italian allies, all the while forcing the Germans to spend precious resources to defend each attack. Haig's decision, however, had condemned his army to a series of brutal, slow-moving attritional battles, across a terrain where the Germans enjoyed a tremendous geographic advantage. Every village, valley, and ridge had been turned into a mini-fortress, defended by pre-sighted artillery and intersecting machine guns. Back in episode 53, The Long, Long Trail, which was a long, long time ago, we discussed the first of these battles, which centered on Third Corps' efforts to take the village of Cantomaison. The battle for Cantomaison was typical of British actions after July the 1st, in that it was a hastily arranged affair, with battalions being thrown into battle with little to no support. After seven days of hellish fighting, Cantomaison was finally cleared by July 11th, but it cost the British a further 3,485 officers and men. But, as the guns roared over Cantomaison, another battle to the east was getting underway. North of Freikorps and Mimetz, the 15th Corps under Henry Horn continued to push north of their July 1st starting line. It had been a tough couple of days for Horn's men. The fighting in and around the village outskirts had been severe, and the men were cold, damp, and exhausted. As a result of these pitched battles, forward battalions had been reduced to nubs forcing Horn to grant a few days' rest on July the 4th, which allowed time for reinforcements to make their way forward. Of the reinforcements en route to the front, one division in particular was marching towards its destiny. Newly arrived to the Somme area, the 38th Walsh Division faced an uncertain future. Having spent the last four months in Western Front backwaters, the 38th Welsh was one of the more controversial units in the British Army, one which invited snickering and gossip everywhere it went. For starters, the division was led by a man of limited military experience. 
Despite his rank, Major General Ivor Phillips was, by training, a politician, and a personal friend of the foremost Welshman of the Empire, David Lloyd George. Ivor Phillips had taken his division to France in December 1915, where it spent the last seven months bouncing around the various depots as it familiarized itself with the ins and outs of trench warfare. From the moment they arrived in France, the 30th Welsh were a source of suspicion among the regular army. Put simply, the 38th Division was born from Lloyd George's desire to form an independent Welsh unit, meaning it was politically charged from its very foundation. Not only had Lloyd George overseen its creation, but he also handpicked Ivor Phillips. In addition to its commanding officer, many other staff members were appointed through Lloyd George's influence, and the minister's continued interest in the division gave it its political dimension. To outside observers, the 38th was little more than Lloyd George's personal army, a place where merit and experience meant nothing. As the 38th Welsh moved into the line, there were rumors of what awaited them. Passing through the wreckages of Frykor and Mimets, they arrived at the front the night of July the 6th. They had been marching for nearly a week, leaving the men tired and footsore. Settling into positions previously held by the 7th Division, the Welshmen stared out across no man's land and were greeted with a curious sight. Instead of shattered villages and farms, a thick wood dominated the horizon. Where artillery fire had obliterated the surrounding landscape, this collection of mature oak, beech, and briar trees remained untouched by war's fury. But not for much longer. Among those watching the 38th take up positions was Siegfried Sassoon who wrote the following observation. Quote, I can believe that I saw then, for the first time, how blindly war destroys its victims. The sun had gone down on my own reckless brandishing, and I understood the doomed condition of these half-trained civilians. End quote. Indeed, Sassoon was correct. The Welsh were about to take part in one of the most notorious and horrific of the Somme battles a place which a full century later has formed a lasting bond between Wales and France, and a place where some locals still venerate, Mamet's Wood. Mamet's Wood stands halfway between Cantomaison and Montauban, just three kilometers northeast of Mamets. In 1916, it was the largest wood on 4th Army's front, comprising an area of 1,000 square meters. It occupied a forward slope near the Byzantine Ridge, and was buttressed by a series of low valleys running toward Contomaison and Mametz. Abandoned for over two years, its thicket was a dense undergrowth of twisted trees and branches. Now you might be asking yourself, what could the British possibly gain by attacking Mametz wood? I mean, couldn't they just go around it and continue on their way? Popular theory would have us believe Mamet's Wood was just a throwaway battle, a classic example of inept leaders having no plan B, and so attacking it was as good as anything else. Such criticisms, however, do not stand up to historical scrutiny, and it turns out there were a number of good reasons why Mamet's Wood was an important, if not necessary, objective for the British. The first has to do with something we've talked a lot about already, geography. Looking northward from the Mamet's Montabon line, the countryside is dominated by four sizable woods. 
Northeast of Montauban lay the Bernafay and Trone Wood, while to the northwest lays Caterpillar Wood. Mamet's Wood, the largest of the four, served as the dividing line between the British 3rd and 15th Corps. As we've discussed in previous episodes, the Somme battles were fought across a landscape which offered little in the way of natural cover. Because of this, these woods became prime real estate for both armies. Not only did they allow the Germans to conceal their positions, but they also served as important stopgaps. From Mamet's Wood, for example, the Germans could pour murderous counterfire towards Caterpillar Wood and Cantomaison. As we saw last episode with the Yorkshire attempts to secure Bailiff Wood, cracking these concealed defenses was immensely difficult. Artillery served to smash trees up, making observation and progress incredibly arduous. In short, these woods were the key to unlock the wider area. Similar to the American-led island-hopping campaign of the Second World War, British command deduced that these woods would have to be cleared one at a time. Without them, the British flanks would never be secure, throwing the success of the entire campaign into jeopardy. What makes the story of Emmett's Wood all the more sobering is that by the time the 38th Division arrived at the front, they had just missed an opportunity to take the wood without force. After the Germans had abandoned Mametz on July 2nd, the British were quick to occupy their old positions, thus putting them within striking distance of Mametz Wood. But with food and water in short supply, Henry Horn was forced to order a temporary halt. As the troops waited for resupply, battalion commanders ordered a series of patrols to assess the defenses of Mametz Wood, which loomed over the British like a sleeping giant. The first of these patrols set out on July 2nd, and having navigated the perimeter of the wood, reported no German activity. For the men in the firing line, this could only mean that the Germans had pulled back. No German presence meant no Germans, and for the exhausted troops, this was welcome news. Bloodied after the battles of Freikorps and Mametz, the survivors were looking forward to being pulled off the line. The 21st Division, for example, had faced near decimation having taken 4,663 casualties, nearly half its combat strength, in under 48 hours. This slight delay gave the Germans all the time they would need to reoccupy the wood. With Falkenhayn's warning ringing in his ears, Fritz von Beloff ordered the Elite Lair Regiment, a formation of specially trained Prussian commandos, to take up positions in the thicket. Having arrived there on July the 4th, the commandos were quick to establish a formidable firing line, further assisted by mixed units dispersed throughout the area. Across no man's land, the Welshmen could hear the wood come to life. The sounds of hammering, collapsing trees, and the rumble of heavy wagons reverberated through the night. Short on shells and bombs, the British could do nothing to stop this buildup. The torrential downpour beginning on July the 4th meant further delays, giving the Germans ample time to perfect their dugouts. Within 72 hours, Mametz Wood went from being open for the taking to a deeply fortified position, defended by some of the best troops Germany had to offer. For the inexperienced Welsh, the odds were firmly against them. The fighting for Mametz Wood can be divided into two distinct phases. The first phase, taking place on July 7th, and the second beginning on July the 10th. These two phases are marked by two attempts to take the wood, one which ended in dismal failure, and the other which succeeded, 
albeit at a much heavier cost. We'll talk briefly about the first attempt to take Mamet's wood, before spending the remainder of the episode discussing the larger, more infamous Second Battle. On the morning of July the 5th, Phillips met with Corps Commander Henry Horn to figure out what to do with Mamet's wood. Aware that Hag insisted on harassing the Germans at every turn, Phillips must have known what was expected of him. Sure enough, orders were issued at 10 a.m. for the 38th to attack the wood. Although nervous about sending his men into battle for the first time, Phillips was eager to prove their worth. With all the gossip surrounding his division, Phillips knew that combat experience would go a long way in silencing their critics. Training for combat is one thing, but planning an actual battle is something much different. Unfortunately for Ivor Phillips, it was quickly revealed that he was in way over his head. In planning the assault, Phillips was all over the map, and he made the crucial mistake of assuming everything would go his way. To start, he refused to set a concrete time of attack. He decided to base his plan on whether a neighboring division, the 17th Division which was attacking west of the wood, was able to occupy the German defenses in the quadrangle. Remember that lattice of German trenches, which played a crucial role in the defense of Contomaison. Whether the 17th would be successful in their attack remained to be seen, of course, but Phillips had planned to use the 17th attack as a diversion from his own. There is little evidence to suggest the 17th commander, Major General T.D. Pilcher, was ever made aware of this, and it seems that Phillips had the idea in his head, yet never articulated it to his staff and subordinates. To accommodate this bizarro plan, Phillips also insisted on two possible attack times. If the 17th took the quadrangle, then zero hour would be 8 a.m., but if not, the attack would be delayed until 8.30. Now, this 30-minute window may not seem like much, and really it was nothing more than a formality. The situation would have changed little in that period, so why Phillips thought it would make a difference remains a bit of a mystery. But where it would have huge consequences was in daylight. As we saw on July the 1st, the British attacked under a full morning sky, rather than at dawn to get a jump on the Germans. Delaying the attack until 8.30 meant the Welsh would again be attacking in full view of the German gunners, who would already be at full alert since the 17th Division would have begun their assault on the quadrangle. This was a huge oversight on Phillips' part, but as we'll see, there was another issue. The battlefield itself. No battle plan, regardless of how well thought out or designed, can work unless the ground which the attackers are expected to cross is carefully studied. It is clear that Phillips had no idea of the type of terrain his men faced. But fortunately, there was one concerned officer who raised a red flag. Brigadier General Horatio Evans, whose 115th Brigade was given the task of leading the assault. The plan was to have the 115th attack the east corner of the wood, entering the tree line at an area the British dubbed the Hammerhead. As the brigade was dug in atop a small ridge overlooking the wood, this meant they would have to descend a slope and enter a grassy bowl, lined with ridges on either side. No Man's Land was 500 meters across surrounded by copses and folds, which gave the Germans complete observation. 
Having reconteered the ground himself, Evans was dismayed to discover that the German lines were in parallel to his brigade's proposed plan of advance, meaning the Welsh would be exposed to deadly crossfire as soon as they left the relative safety of their trenches. Evans attempted to remedy the situation by narrowing the width of advance to a single battalion, hoping to shelter the troops in a valley which ran along the northern face of Caterpillar Wood. Unfortunately, Phillips interjected, ordering Evans to attack on a two-battalion frontage. This meant stretching his attack across a wider area, inevitably exposing more men to German counterfire. Although horrified by this prospect, Evans followed orders and set his attack as per his CO's wish. In any event, the haphazard planning spelt doom for the Welshmen as they climbed over the top. As the 17th Division failed to take the quadrangle earlier that morning, the attack ended up going in at 8.30am. The Germans were well aware they were coming. They could see the tops of steel helmets shuffling back and forth, and the British guns had fired a brief but fairly intense bombardment on their trenches. The German defenses were concentrated in three main spots. The Hammerhead and two copses to the northeast, identified by the British as Flatiron and Sabot Copse. These copses were also connected by a trench network, allowing the Germans to move freely throughout the area. This gave them the unique advantage of being able to catch the Welshmen in a deadly crossfire, from the Hammerhead and the aforementioned copses, which ran parallel to their axis of advance. Indeed, Brigadier Evans's fears were justified the moment the attack got underway. A smokescreen scheduled to begin at 8.30 failed to materialize, and so the division marched across no man's land in plain sight of the enemy, their khaki uniforms silhouetted against the grass. The two battalions leading the advance were the 16th Welsh and the 11th Southwest Borderers, who advanced simultaneously. From his command post, a sudden dread overtook Evans, who could only stare in horror at what transpired. There were too many men attacking at once, and coordination among them was breaking down. No Welshman got within 200 meters of the hammerhead before the German machine guns crackled to life, sawing down the leading units and causing chaos in the ranks. The impetus fell apart, and the attack soon devolved into fight or flight. Some tried to rally their men in an attempt to rush the hammerhead, but none made it to the tree line. Captain Llewellyn Griffith, a brigade staff officer, observed the carnage, writing, quote, Men were burrowing into the ground with their entrenching tools, seeking whatever cover they might take. Wounded men were crawling back from the ridge. Men were crawling forward with ammunition. No attack could succeed over such ground, as this was swept from front and side by machine guns. End quote. By 10 a.m., casualties among 115th Brigade were piling up, and it was dreadfully clear that the attack had to be abandoned. Heavy rain had begun to fall, making movement and communication all the more difficult. A final effort to salvage the attack took place at 3 o'clock that afternoon, when Evans ordered the 10th South Wales Borderers into the fray. The 10th Borderers were supposed to attack at 11 a.m., but due to muddy conditions, did not arrive at the front until later that afternoon. Launching their attack between the 16th Welsh and 11th Borderers, the 10th Borderers' efforts were in vain. The attack gained nothing, and was no nearer to the hammerhead than at the outset. 
By 6 o'clock that evening, the attack was finally called off. The first attempt to capture Mehmet's Wood had been a horrible debacle, with casualties as high as 400 men. As a testament to the iniquitous folly, the fighting had claimed the lives of three pairs of brothers. The first pair, Arthur and Letter Tregascus, had been farmers in Canada before returning to Wales to enlist in the 38th Division. The Tregascus brothers joined the division on the same day, and had been promoted and commissioned as officers on the same day. They would also die on the same day. Eyewitnesses reporting that one brother had been killed by a shell burst when the other stopped to assist him. Both were then killed by a burst of German machine gun fire. The other brothers, Privates Henry and Owen Morgan, were killed in the opening advance, while Albert and Ernest Oliver were killed within days of each other. Albert died on July 7th, while Ernest would return to Mehmet's Wood on July the 10th, where he too would be killed. The failure to take Mehmet's Wood on July 7th has become infamous for reasons beyond the obvious. Not because it was poorly planned and resulted in terrible wastage, which alone should be grounds for notoriety. Its legacy grew out of something different, not from casualty figures or what Phillips should or should not have done, but from what Douglas Haig wrote in his diary after the fact. Haig was incensed by the lack of drive and determination on the part of Ivor Phillips, and by extension, the Welsh division. That evening, Haig composed a scathing critique on the Welshman's performance. His entry that night reads as follows, quote, Such incidences are unworthy of the traditions of our army. Victory is not won by half-hearted performances. End quote. Hag's comments were terribly unfair to the troops involved, and for years this passage has been used to show Hag at his sympathetic worst. It certainly has not won him many friends in Wales, where the prevailing image of Hag the Butcher has remained strong. But by putting this passage into proper context, we can get a better understanding of what was happening at the time. First, Hag's comments were not limited to the Welsh division. I know it's been a while since our last episode, but in episode 53, The Long Long Trail, we talked about the battle for Canto Maison. As you'll recall, July 7th marked the day when the first Worcestershires had been forced to retreat from Canto Maison after holding it for most of the morning. Having lost Canto Maison and the Hammerhead on the same day, Haig's disappointment was certainly justified. Although this does not make up for these poorly conceived operations, it does show that Hag's remarks were not the ramblings of a deranged madman. All that can be said is that Hag was unaware of the true situation, a victim of the fog of war that enveloped the high commander. The second thing we can pull from Hag's comment is that the CNC's ire was not directed at the men in uniform, but at the leadership of Ivor Phillips. As you'll recall from earlier in the episode, Phillips was a political appointee, exactly the type of man Hag did not want in his army. Hag seized the opportunity, and with Henry Horn's assistance, Phillips was called to 15th Corps headquarters on July the 9th. Horn informed Phillips that an inquiry had been launched to investigate the failings of July 7th. But this inquiry, like many inquiries before, was a half-hearted attempt. Phillips's fate was already sealed. On July the 10th, 
Phillips was again summoned to Corps headquarters with orders to return to England. For Phillips, a man of some status and influence as a member of Parliament, his dismissal must have hit hard. It certainly affected Lloyd George, whose rocky relationship with Hag was already strained. With Phillips on a boat back to England, command of the 38th Division was up for grabs. Horn wanted to put forth his own candidate, but Hag beat him to the punch. Major General Herbert Watts, then commander of 7th Division, was brought in to replace the departed Phillips. Now, we do not know a whole lot about Herbert Watts. We know for certain that he did not attend staff college, having spent his early career entirely on regimental service. In April 1880, he was commissioned into the Prince of Wales of Yorkshire Regiment, where he spent the next 30 years, being promoted to lieutenant the following year. Having served in South Africa alongside Hag, John French, and other First World War British generals, Watts developed a no-nonsense style of leadership. Well known for his courage and fighting spirit, he was a bulldog fighter, who shared no illusions of the immense challenge placed before him. He was also a strong designator, who led his divisional staff have a larger share in planning and organization. Two days after the attack on the Hammerhead, Watts's staff convened with a new plan. Although it shared some similarities with Phillips's earlier plan, there were some notable differences. First, the attack would begin at dawn, with a brief artillery bombardment commencing at 4.15 a.m. Second, the number of battalions was doubled, from two to four, with all battalions being held in reserve to be used at a moment's notice. In other words, Watts was mobilizing the entire division nearly 11,000 men across 12 battalions. Third and last, the direction of attack was altered. It would now come from the southeast, where the battalions would enjoy additional coverage from Caterpillar Wood and surrounding copses. This new plan had Watts's stamp all over it. While Phillips's earlier attempt was disorganized, and for lack of a better word, feeble, Watts's was a haymaker to the chin designed for the purpose of capturing the wood with the greatest amount of force. In retrospect, all of this sounded pretty good, but the truth of the matter was that few officers in the British Army had combat experience in forested areas. In fact, most military commanders seek to avoid such places unless the terrain is to their advantage. Had the 38th known what awaited them in Mamet's wood, then perhaps the start date of July the 10th would have been delayed because once they entered the thicket, they were on their own. The undergrowth acted to camouflage the German defenses, so accurate maps of the German guns were in short supply. The Welsh were walking in blind, and what they would find on the other side was anyone's guess. At dawn on July the 10th, the second attempt to take Mamet's wood got underway. A thunderous artillery bombardment signaled its commencement, Shells of all caliber fell on the wood, smashing up trees, branches, and stripping all traces of vegetation. In the pitched morning darkness, the shelling was grotesquely beautiful. Clouds of smoke corkscrewed the sky as the wood belched large pillars of flame, roaring and shaking with each impact. The men at the front watched this hellish symphony, gripping their rifles and stealing themselves for the challenge. The forward units were arrayed along Fusilier Ridge, 
which overlooked the rising ground from which to attack. On the left was the 16th Royal Welch Fusiliers, with the 14th Fusiliers in support. The center battalion was the 14th Welsh Regiment, while on the extreme right was the 13th Welsh Regiment, supported by the 10th in reserve. These formations were supported by machine gun companies, which would sweep no man's land with cover fire. It was hoped this would suppress the Germans long enough to allow the men to reach the tree line, some 500 meters across open fields. Boys, make your peace with God. We are going to take that position, and some of us won't come back, shouted Lieutenant Colonel James Carden of the 16th Welsh Fusiliers. Hoping to rally his men, Carden had tied a colored handkerchief to his walking stick, which he held up as a focal point. Carden was a true leader, and when the whistle blew, he was one of the first men out of the trenches. It was a heroic gesture, but the handkerchief made Carden an obvious target for the Germans. He was wounded in the leg soon after. Refusing to give up, he braved another storm of bullets before he was hit again, this time fatally, and Carden fell dead 40 meters from the tree line. The Fusiliers would face the day without their commanding officer. It was 4.45 a.m. before the remaining battalions began their assault. Seven were due in the opening wave. As they began their sprint across the rising ground, German MGs along the tree line crackled to life. Adding to their course were snipers concealed in the trees, who targeted officers with impunity. Resistance was heavy, as were casualties amongst the most exposed units. The 13th Welsh, moving in support of the 14th at the center of the advance, was the first battalion to penetrate the tree line. It took three separate attempts, but eventually the 13th Welsh managed to enter the wood. Once inside, however, they found their jobs were only beginning. The dense undergrowth provided no easy passage, forcing the men to cut their own way through. The entry of the 13th helped turn the German flank. This, in turn allowed the 14th and 16th Fusiliers to solidify a foothold. Soon, three battalions of Welsh Fusiliers were concentrated on the western side of the wood. In the center, the ground was held by the 14th Welsh, who after a brief holdup were able to rejoin the advance. To the right, near the hammerhead, the 10th Welsh continued to engage the Germans. It would be another two hours before the 10th could link up with their comrades in the wood. As they moved past the tree line, the battle for Mehmet's wood was just getting started. Navigating through the vines and collapsed branches was immensely difficult. Each individual had to find his own way through, picking, digging, and climbing over each obstacle. As they pulled themselves through the mud and foliage, cohesion broke down. Small arms fire echoed throughout the wood, as the pounding of mortars and shell bursts turned branches into high-speed projectiles. In Mehmet's wood, nature was as deadly as man. In the face of such carnage, it was inevitable that momentum would suffer. Two hours into the attack, Mehmet's wood was congested with troops. Eight battalions were now attempting to navigate their way forward. Private David Jones, of the 15th Royal Welsh Fusiliers, describes the shifting mass that was his regiment writing, quote, But which way is front? In which way is the way on? 
And where's the corporal? And what's this crush and all this shoving you along? And someone shouting rhetorically about remembering your nationality. End quote. Private Jones's experience was typical for many combatants at Mamet's Wood. In the crush of pushing, thrashing, and screaming, concentrated attacks devolved into piecemeal efforts. Platoons separated from their companies, and commanders lost sight of their sections. Incidences of friendly fire were widely reported, as the slightest noise or disturbance brought a response of wild firing. To make matters worse, only officers carried compasses, and the enemy could be anywhere. Both armies lived in constant fear of ambush. Trying to make sense of the chaos, Llewellyn Griffith was at a loss for words. From brigade headquarters, Griffith described Mamet's wood as a vision of hell, writing, quote, The devil had taken his seat at his keyboard to play the opening vows of his morning hymn, end quote. As the day grew brighter and hotter, the Germans worked tirelessly to defend their hold. The Lair Regiment had spent ten miserable days in the wood. They had fortified what they could, but with little food or water, their ability to withstand further pressure was uncertain. Outnumbered two to one, and in some cases three to one, no amount of training could have prepared them for this fight. Although a formidable fighting man, the German soldier on the Somme was faced with insurmountable odds. Pushed to the limit of human endurance, the lairs hung on grimly. The position represented a dismal sight, wrote Reserve Lieutenant Stravald of the Reserve Infantry 91, who was sent to reinforce a shattered trench opposite the 16th Fusiliers. It had been laid waste by drum fire of the past few days. The line of trench could barely be seen. Another German account, this time from a reservist of the 11th Company Reserve Regiment, recalled how in his sector there were no trenches or dugouts to be seen with thistles and branches being the only available cover. For the layers in supporting battalions, the confusing topography was amplified by the thunder of battle, as one German witness later observed. Suddenly, there was a violent blow like that of a giant blacksmith's hammer. Our candles are extinguished. A torrent of earth falls in. Everything caught fire. The guns, the rations, the woods, and the men's equipment. Some of the gunners were buried alive. Add to this, constant hard work and strain, physical and mental, which went on for days. But there was still much fighting to do. By 6.30 that morning, July the 10th, the Welsh had secured their first objectives and had begun to pivot their advance. Heading northward, the battalions began to comb the wood, beginning the slow process of pushing the Germans out. Although the hammerhead remained hotly contested, a foothold had been established, giving the Welsh a staging area for future attacks. It was at this moment when Watts took a gamble. Not wanting to repeat the mistakes of Ivor Phillips, Watts ordered three battalions, the 14th, 15th, and 16th Royal Welsh Fusiliers, to be withdrawn, replacing them with the 10th South Wales Borderers, along with the 17th Welsh Fusiliers. Watts was responding to rumors that the Germans were attempting to outflank the wood, and given the uncertainties over the Battle of Cantomaison, which was ongoing at the same time, remember, this was a risk Watts was unwilling to take. It would take hours before the swap was complete, 
The chaos of the wood, coupled with the muddy conditions and noise of battle, made the process immensely difficult. But by four o'clock that afternoon, things were ready to go ahead. With fresh troops now in the mix, the Welsh finally gained the upper hand. The battle line faced the northeast, with the 13th Welsh Fusiliers on the left flank, supported by the 15th and 17th Fusiliers in the center, and the 10th South Wales Borderers on the right flank, opposite the Hammerhead. These four battalions were tasked with the final push. With the 17th Fusiliers in the lead, the battalions fanned out in all directions. The guns roared again, and Bamet's wood was bathed in flame. Slowly but surely, the Germans were beginning to melt away. The hammerhead finally fell into Welsh possession after 12 hours of pitched fighting. In the hall, the Welsh took 24 German prisoners, in addition to several field guns. It would take 48 hours before Mehmet's wood was finally cleared. By 6.30 in the evening of July 12th, the 38th finally broke out along its northern edge. The fusiliers and borderers set to work consolidating the position, and in the process, deflected two German counterattacks. It was clear that the German position was in disarray. These counterattacks were poorly planned affairs. Mixed units were thrown together in order to charge the wood without adequate artillery. As expected, the tables had turned. This time, it was the Germans who were met with a hail of rifle and machine gun fire. The Welsh were not about to give up, and as a consequence, hundreds of German troops were sacrificed. Nothing had been gained, and the losses to the German companies had been severe. Although the Germans continued to shell the wood from their positions along Langeval, the Battle of Emmet's Wood was over. By the morning of July 13th, not a single German remained, giving the 38th control over the region. In the 48-hour battle, the Welsh division had suffered 4,000 casualties, including 7 out of 12 battalion commanders and 190 officers. The gruesome baptism of fire had nearly annihilated the division, resulting in its immediate evacuation on July 13th. In five days, the 16-month-old division had been decimated. So heavy were the losses that the division would not see the Western Front again for a full year, only returning to combat in July 1917, just in time to take part in the Battle of Passchendaele. The Battle of Mehmet's Wood is in many ways still viewed as one of those futile and pointless engagements. The fact that thousands of Welsh and German soldiers perished over a bunch of broken branches is a powerful testament to the stupidity of British generalship. And after a full century, the three syllables have not lost their power to appall. Perhaps this was due to the presence there of a number of visual artists and writers, who either took part in the battle or were in the vicinity of the action. Mehmet's Wood left a deep impression on all of them, and for years, the battle remained a centerpiece of artistic expression. Captain Llewellyn Griffith, for example, would entitle his memoir Up to Mehmet's, while Private David Jones, whom we met earlier, would become a writer of some distinction after the war. Most recently, Welsh poet Owen Shears offered his own contribution to the mythos, with his poem entitled Mehmet's Wood 
written to commemorate the 90th anniversary back in 2005. The battle has also been subject to numerous paintings. Welsh artist Christopher Williams was commissioned by Lloyd George to depict the struggle for the wood. The massive painting Williams produced is perhaps one of the more graphic depictions of combat. It leaves little to the imagination, and if you visit thegreatwarpodcast.podbean.com, I've uploaded Williams's painting for you to see. Furthermore, the battle also left a lasting impression on the units who entered following the Walsh evacuation. Units of the 21st Division moved into Mehmet's Wood in the evening of July 13th, their job being to set up gun positions for the coming assault on the 2nd German position. As they navigated the tangled undergrowth, they came across the dead and dismembered bodies of Welshmen and Germans. Mixed with the smashed trees and broken branches, it was a scene of nauseating horror. Many of the new arrivals fell ill from the stench, including Robert Graves, who stumbled across the unforgettable sight of two soldiers still standing, having fallen against the tree, but locked together by bayonet. Other British soldiers recalled similar scenes, such as Gerald Brennan, who came across the corpses of a Welsh and German soldier, who had bayoneted each other simultaneously. Llewellyn Griffith, who passed through the woods soon after, wrote perhaps the most stirring description of the aftermath. Not even H.R. Geiger could have painted a more unsettling vision than that of Mehmet's wood. Quote, Years of neglect had turned the wood into a formidable barrier a mile deep. Heavy shelling had thrown trees and large branches into the barricade. Equipment, ammunition, rolls of barbed wire, tins of food, gas helmets and rifles were laying about everywhere. There were more corpses than men, limbs in mutilated trunks here and there, a detached head forming splashes of red against the green leaves, and as an advertisement for the horror of our way of life and death, and of our crucifixion of youth, one tree held up in its branches a leg, with its own torn flesh hanging down over a spray of leaf. Quote. Today, the events of Mehmet's Wood are commemorated by one of the most striking war memorials in France. Atop a three-meter stone plinth stands a Welsh dragon similar to the one which appears on the national flag. The dragon is clutching a single strand of barbed wire, while its head is shown slightly to the side, staring out over the hammerhead where so many Welshmen fought and died. Only erected through volunteer efforts in 1986, it is a fitting tribute to the grisly battle. The scars of battle still remain at Mehmet's, Rotting leather and other battlefield debris are now part of the undergrowth. Farmers have also uncovered countless shells, either in the fields or in the branches of trees. Like Verdun, those who visit the field are struck by how little has changed. The 38th may have come to France as outsiders, but to many of the locals, the Welsh have never left. Perhaps it is stories like these which gave Mehmet's Wood its sinister reputation. It was a savage, chaotic battle to be sure, but one must be careful not to lose sight over why it was fought. It was not, contrary to popular belief, a pointless battle. The capture of Mehmet's Wood marked the end of the second phase of the Battle of the Somme. 
The salient, which had been left over from July the 1st, had been eliminated, and 4th Army was now in a position to launch an attack on the next line of German defenses. Haig's piecemeal attacks, although costly, had produced the desired results. The line had been straightened, and the next set-piece battle could begin. As the Germans were forced to meet each Allied attack, this in turn meant fewer reinforcements to defend the second line. Fritz von Belov, the German army commander, realized the immense burden placed on his army. But, with Anglo-French superiority in guns and manpower, there was little he could do. On the other side, Haig, Rawlinson, Joff, Fayol, and thousands of Anglo-French troops were gearing up for the assault. On July the 14th, 1789, Parisian citizens had stormed the Bastille, marking a major chapter in the French Revolution. 127 years later, July 14th would see the storming of a different kind, this time in the name of national liberation against a foreign invader. The Anglo-French armies would rumble to life, hitting reset on July the 1st and smashing the German positions along Pozier Longueval. The Somme campaign was far from over, but in their next set-piece battle, the British army would not be met with failure, but with complete success. That's it for this week. Be sure to check out our website at thegreatwarpodcast.podbean.com. There you can find a list of sources and contact information if you wish to get in touch with me. Listener feedback is greatly appreciated, so if you have any questions or comments, you can follow us on Twitter at Great War Podcast or reach us through email thegreatwarpodcast at outlook.com. If you are enjoying the show and want to help us out, there are a couple of ways to get involved. You can make a one-time donation through the homepage, which goes to help cover the cost of hosting and acquiring new sources. Another way to get involved is to go to iTunes and write a 5-star review. iTunes charts their podcasts based on the number of user reviews, so the more feedback we have, the higher we'll place. This will help keep us afloat in the rankings and help attract new listeners. This has been episode 54 of the Great War Podcast. Thank you so much for listening, and we'll see you again shortly.